The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Let you know next time I'm back that way. Yeah, okay. please do. And we're live. It is Thursday, October 28th, not January anymore, um, <laughs> 2021, 5.03 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to really admire Ben's new um, dead Tyrannosaurus Rex shirt. <laughs> and uh, the <laughs> I like that. That's the correct fa face. Um, Jill, uh, like, the, like was what she did. And like, trust if we tell you that this is better than some of the dog shirts, would you believe us? Okay, I, don't I just so. want to say to everybody who's raising this issue in the chat, the T Rex skull shirt is not replacing the dog shirts. Uh, this was done in consultation with Genevieve, um, and. Uh, who has also ordered an awesome new dog shirt. Um, but we decided that a very limited amount of diversification of the species uh, to include extinct reptiles in a limited occasional fashion was just Acceptable. good fun, varying it up, not an example of infidelity to the dog shirt oh, no. over a and uh, so I, I want you all to calm down about the dog shirts. They're fine. They all support this decision. Um, and remember, there has always been a rhinoceros shirt. So it's not, you know, it's one more non-dog and one extinct animal. It's just not that big a deal. So chill, it, guys. It also makes me think every time that you see, like, the skull, it's like... The king is dead. Long live the king. I don't know why. That's the first thing that pops into my head. Uh, anyways, uh, there's a reason that there's no uh, Lulu Lula row for dog shirts. Uh, I can't any, imagine why. Are there why. any T-Rex Lula row leggings? I don't think. So. I don't know. Joe. <laughs> I'm going to do a quick Google. They had all kinds of bananas, crazy stuff on their leggings. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was a pair of uh, T-Rex ones. I am not personally uh, an expert in the LuLaRoe leggings, like line of various As, fa lines. as fashion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's such a pleasure to have you back on the show. And um, you're one of the reasons we wanted to is because Ben watched you in um, the documentary on Amazon, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Yeah. Lou LaRich. Um, that is all about kind of this crazy multi-level marketing scheme. So, um, Ben, I you are were very excited about this. So I will let you go ahead. Yeah, so I was excited about it because of a set of comments that you made in the documentary. And I just want to say the documentary on its own terms is really interesting, particularly if, like me, uh, you're interested in multi-level marketing schemes and ways of scamming people out of large numbers of people. Scamming individuals is its own thing and, frankly, much less interesting 
Um, but these kind of mass scams that work on, uh, that have an ideological dimension, that in LuLaRoe's case have a religious dimension, that have a big separating people from their money dimension, um, uh, I think are fascinating on their own terms. But none of that is why I was so interested to talk to you about this. The reason I was interested in talking to you about it was your comments about the demographics of the target audience uh, and, uh, and specifically uh, your thoughts on why MLMs are generally speaking so effectively targeted at a certain demographic of women. Um, and I thought this was a really interesting uh, observation. Um, it dovetails with my own sense of how most but not all MLM schemes that I've ever seen are, uh, are uh, in fact targeted. And so I was interested in just having you develop the point. It was kind of something that you, a point you made, not in passing, but it was, you know, you made it over the course of five minutes um, in, in the show. And I just thought it was interesting and uh, wanted to talk it through with you. So um, let me start by asking you um, to what extent is LuLaRoe typical of MLMs in the way it targets uh, stay-at-home moms uh, of a certain socioeconomic, mostly white, uh, mostly fairly traditional and religious uh, uh, demographic? And to what extent is it a sort of unusual beast that, like, found a particular world on which to prey. Um, it, it, in your judgment, is, is the phenomenon you observed about LuLaRoe uh, a generalizable to MLMs, or is it just a weird creature of this, this particular scam? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do think it's generalizable. I don't think you can generalize it to all MLMs, right? Like the Amway salesman is obviously not a stay-at-home mom in our in kind of our collective minds. Um, but I do think increasingly you see MLMs that are targeting this really uh, very kind of rich demographic, not in, in, not in economic terms, but uh, in terms of the amount of spare time that they have, in terms of the desires that they have. So I think one of the reasons why these educated, stay-at-home, often conservative, uh, often religious mothers are such a ripe demographic uh, for these MLM scams and schemes um, is that they're women who do actually have quite a bit of ambition, right? But for reasons of religion and culture and sense of obligation have really put that ambition aside or perhaps funneled that ambition primarily into rearing children. Um, but also still live in a capitalist society and often in these kind of hyper-capitalist communities, right? Like conservative Christian communities, um, Mormon communities where you have uh, this kind of prosperity gospel ideology really animating the way people understand their, their wealth or lack thereof, that you know, if you are a good enough Christian, a good enough believer, then you will be blessed with material goods. 
Um, but you also have to do the work yourself in order to achieve that. And that that's what God wants. Um, when you have all of that ideology, and then you have a company coming in and telling you as, as LuLaRoe did, but as many MLMs do, you can do part-time work for full-time pay. And the way that you are going to get this full-time pay is by leveraging your contacts, your relationships with your community, which these women have in spades, right? Um, you know, these are the women who run the PTAs and the bake sales and, you know, get out the vote drives and have tremendous connection within their communities and tremendous trust. Um, and so I think all of that does create this really ready pool of very easily exploitable women who are smart, who are hardworking, who really want the sense of financial independence in a way that doesn't actually threaten this conservative model of family where men are still the primary breadwinners and still the primary people in charge of a family's finances. So you describe in the show um, how you first became aware of LuLaRoe, um, which I'm going to summarize with half a sentence and contrast with my own experience and then ask you to flesh out the sentence. So you talk about in the show how you became aware of LuLaRoe because you started suddenly seeing large numbers of people on Facebook um, uh, in your among your Facebook friends and friends of friends suddenly marketing LuLaRoe businesses. I uh, this impressed upon me that your and my Facebook demographics are really different because I have never seen anybody promote uh, an MLM or LuLaRoe in particular on Facebook. I've simply never seen it. Scott, and, did you get LuLaRoe? Your friends selling, you're trying to sell you leggings? Um, no, I, I, that's, I, that's just like a special thing I do for myself. Okay. <laughs> what about you two? Has uh, GDF and Kate, did you see LuLaRoe? Uh... Yeah, I actually thought it was a Lululemon knockoff or something. I didn't I really did never know. Yeah, I didn't know what it was. And I never I... got into the Lululemon phenomenon either, which is a, not an MLM thing, but like is a brand, like a really hot <laughs> brand thing. And so I just was like, oh, I don't, if I don't care about that, then I definitely don't care about the knockoff. That was like basically like how I felt. But yeah, so GDF, I did literally... you see it? I literally learned about it when I first started watching the show. And I started watching the show because I was interested in MLMs and somebody told me, hey, there's a good MLM uh, show. Um, so my, my question is, we have an unscientific sample, three women, two men. The two men are older than the three women, so that's a little bit conflating. But we're, uh, should we assume that, and actually this would be a good poll question, uh, uh, Kate, um, should we assume that women below a certain age were all bombarded all of a sudden on Facebook with LuLaRoe stuff and that men were essentially unaware that it was happening? Um, yes, but I also think even within the demographic of women in my generation, um, who was bombarded and by how close of friends varies a tremendous amount. So, you know, I have lived in 
more or less in New York City with a few ventures out for, for about 20 years. Um, I don't have a single friend in New York, like an actual real life friend who sells LuLaRoe or any other MLM, right? I've never personally been invited to a LuLaRoe or any other one of these like MLM parties, right? The people who I was seeing this from were women who I know from high school. Um, yes. You know, who I really... I, and I and what part of the country did you go to high school in? I grew up in Seattle, which is a really progressive place, um, but does have a very particular strand of evangelical Christianity and Mormonism. And that was typically where I was seeing this coming from. It was, you know, women, again, not particularly close friends, but people I, I just sort of knew in the amorphous space of, you know, a high school class and their siblings and whatnot. Um, almost all, again, stay-at-home moms. Um, yeah, and folks who were not necessarily inviting me to these LuLaRoe parties, but were doing what LuLaRoe and other MLMs tell their sellers to do, which is go on social media and talk about what an incredible, profitable, meaningful business this is. Brand yourself as like the boss babe on Facebook. Um, and so I saw a lot of that. I've honestly seen it start to kind of rapidly um, decline in the past few years. Um, maybe all those women have now unfriended me on Facebook since this documentary, which, mm -hmm. which was fine. Um, but, you know, there, there was a period, I would say, you know, especially, I don't know, five, seven years ago, where I was quite surprised at how many women were selling everything from, you know, these leggings to tooth whitening, toothpaste, Skincare. Um, the skincare, yeah, Rodan and Fields, um, shampoo. The one thing that I saw men selling were the like protein, like Herbalife, seemed to be very popular among like gym, gym going <laughs> men I went to high school with. Um, so it isn't exclusively female, but it does seem uh, to be less common, I would say, in big cities. It seems to be less common among people that are working white collar jobs. I think there's a class element here too. Um, even though the folks who are selling this also, I think, tend to be middle and upper middle class. Um, and it tends to be far less common, at least anecdotally, among women who have full-time out-of-the-home jobs. May I ask, I, I think it's so interesting that you made a documentary um, as opposed to like a long-form article or a book or something like that. What, what, um, what led you to do a documentary uh, uh, to tell the story? So I wish I could take credit for the documentary. I, I, I can't, <laughs> I didn't make it. I was just okay. asked to appear in it as kind of one of several expert voices. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I see. Not okay, because okay. I'm necessarily- It's kind of like the Sherpa. Like you kind of guided everyone through kind of like setting up this. It was excellent. I thought it was really, that you like that your expertise was really perfect. Um, yeah. I, I, I got you. Okay, I, I see. Um, so then what got you interested in multi-level marketing? Um, so I've written about feminism, gender, women's rights uh, for a number of years, uh, too many years probably. <laughs> and you sort of uh, observed this dynamic happening, right? And then also was observing the conversation around MLMs um, and how it was being increasingly understood as a kind of feminized line of work. Um, and I was interested in how it tied into these traditional ideas of where women should be in the family and how that kind of blasts head first into American style capitalism and American style, you know, prosperity, gospel, religiosity. 
Um, you know, also at this moment when like the girl boss and the boss babe was, you know, was very much this kind of like cheap feminist branding of women having jobs. Um, and this just really hit at all of those intersections of, of a bunch of different things that I find really fascinating. Well, I think it plays really well into your first book, The H Spot, like kind of like what makes women happy and like kind of like mm. the idea of kind of that. So I think that there's um, and then, I mean, it does totally draw on. And one of the things that I was doing some reading of some of the stuff, there was actually a very thorough BuzzFeed article that I should link to in a second um, that kind of went into the history of the two sisters that originally founded um, the company and like the Mormon background. And one of them apparently was the head California organizer for Stop ERA in um, under like, you know, Phyllis Schlafly's like kind of multi-level marketing scheme to stop like a constitutional amendment. Um, but that uh, but that kind of struck me as like an interesting that that like the minute I saw that I was like, well, you know, I've written a lot about this and have like started at the, I was like, oh, I know exactly, exactly what this demographic is and who they're able to cater to. Um, so I, I do kind of wonder, like, do you think that, do you think that this is going, it's always going to be this way? Because there is something also that like, I remember there are a couple of multi-level marketing schemes or a couple kind of pyramid schemes that are less like targeted um, at women. There are ones that target themselves, for example, young kids, like uh, the, um, the ones that train you to be a bartender to like get your, do you, do you remember these? Like they kind of, that you have to pay all this money and you become a bartender and you you get this when you're like 15 and you can make, does no one remember this? This was like such a thing. All of my oh, friends, yeah. Yeah. all of my friends did. They all like paid like the class. Yeah, yeah. It was like a class and you got licensed. There was, there is no bartending license, obviously, <laughs> but it would like teach you how to make the drinks and you were like legally allowed to tend bar in at least in New York state at like 15 or 16. And so like, you make all, oh, you can make all this money in tips and you can do this whole thing and you'd put all this money into this and you'd never get hired at 16 to be like a freaking bartender at anywhere that's going to give you good tips. And like, mm -hmm. and so like, there's just like, there's like that. And then there was Cutco Knives, which I think is less crazy, but like, cause, and not as good, but my brother did that. My brother sold Cutco yeah, Knives. Yeah, my, my high school girlfriend sold Cutco and, Knives. And, but like, too. the thing that strikes me about that targeting is that it's also targeted to people who are looking, who, who are not like looking to make a career. They're looking to make a quick buck. They're looking to like get rich quick a little bit. They're looking to have something that's transient and doesn't like start, you know, kind of that they feel like they're doing something productive and a part of something that's cult. Like, I mean, it is kind of cult like they, you get it. There's this whole language of like the Cutco knives thing and like, they reward you and they start giving you these prizes and like you feel like you're doing so well it's like this kind of like here's a cookie and here's a slightly bigger cookie and like here's a, here's you know we'll like make you a whole giant cake and something will like burst out of it with knives i don't know but like anyway where i was going with that um but i do kind of wonder like uh what is your take on kind of how that philosophy moves over from like the Avon saleswoman to kind of also to kids. Like what are, what's kind of the societal kind of thing that we're, we can get from that. Yeah. I mean, so there's this really, if folks are interested in, in the MLM beat, 
there's this great podcast called The Dream, um, which was done by a woman named Jane Marie, who used to be at NPR. She was at Jezebel for a while. It's, it's awesome. And it goes through the kind of whole history of MLMs in the United States, how they became as totally unregulated as they are, right? Even while the government was trying to crack down on pyramid schemes, what it was that enabled MLMs, which are for all intents and purposes, pyramid schemes, um, what enabled them to uh, sort of get out of any of those regulations. Um, and I think what becomes really clear from that podcast is that MLMs shapeshift as the culture does, right? And kind of like anything else, they respond, uh, these companies respond to whatever the cultural touch points are. They've always had uh, a lot of success in conservative and religious communities, right? Um, I mean, Utah is like scammer central because Mormons tend to be a pretty uh, well-connected, interconnected community with high levels of inter-community trust um, and where people assume that if they share a faith, they share a value system and they won't rip each other off. Um, and Mormons rip each other off all of the time. And so I do think MLMs kind of fit into that general, uh, general space. Um, I think the way that you've seen these female-focused MLMs adopts the language of like millennial pink feminism is very much reflective of the cultural moment that we've been in for the past few years um, and one that is very much shifting. Um, but I think even, even if we do see these evolve more, and I think we will, um, I don't think we're gonna see the end of MLMs unless they're regulated out of existence. But I do think we will see them take different shapes. And so it's not going to be wear parties and you know the Mary Kay sales lady. Um, you know, it's gonna be Rodan and Fields and the branding of like, I'm running my own small business. Uh, and we'll see what they look like in five or ten years. Um, but I think unfortunately, what we have seen for the past century is that despite a plethora of information, right? People are still signing up for these things. People are still trusting, you know, as is not completely irrational, trusting their friends and neighbors when their friends and neighbors say, I have a great business opportunity for you. Um, and so I really think the only solution here uh, is, is changing the legal and regulatory framework around these companies. I want to ask you about a, a weird aspect of the faux feminism of LuLaRoe and how typical it is or isn't. So the faux feminism in LuLaRoe seems to me to operate at two different levels. The first is this kind of, you know, uh, girl boss, small business, badass uh, thing that's kind of common to a lot of MLMs. But the second aspect, which I don't know that I've ever seen before, is that once you're a certain, you know, I don't know if it's hip, hip deep or, you know, sort of neck deep in the water, they push you real hard to turn over the actual management of the business to your husband. And there's a, there's a weird pressure that the organization seems to exert on these women bosses who were running their women-owned businesses, you know, to actually take a very subservient position in those businesses 
and the ones that refuse get terrorized by the organization. Um, and there's one woman in it who describes how once she involved her husband, the management of LuLaRoe would only deal with him. They wouldn't deal with her. They wouldn't even refer to her by name. Um, and so I, I guess I, I'm puzzled by this because it does not seem economically rational from the organization's standpoint to have, you know, like if you want if you want faux, the first level of faux feminism to work, you're actually undermining it with the second level of faux feminism, which, which could be reasonably expected to piss people off and seems to actually. Um, and so my question is, 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 is that serving some, some actual function for the organization or is that the organization, the sort of, conservative ideology of the organization actually interfering with the effective running of a, you know, of a sort of profit maximizing MLM? Yeah, I mean, so, so it's both. I mean, the thing with MLMs is that the way that the companies make money and the way individuals make money is not actually by selling products, right? Um, so if anybody watching is new to MLMs, that is like the first thing to understand. These companies don't actually, LuLaRoe does not make money by selling leggings. LuLaRoe and the women who sell LuLaRoe make money by getting other people to sign up to sell leggings. And so in order to sell the leggings, unlike any That's how other, we do it on, that's how we do it on In Little Fun too. Right. We, don't, we don't actually get audience members. We get new co-hosts to develop audiences <laughs> of people who are going to become Jill, co you're a co-host now and you owe me $10,000. They've paid in and, you know, they're responsible for recruiting their own new co-hosts. We have to move a certain amount of product in a month. Yeah, it's, it, 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 we, it, it, we have um, download metrics we have to make. Um, and, if we, and if we don't, um, well, let's just say um, I have to clean apartments or whatever. <laughs> um, sorry, we got distracted from Ben's question, but. Uh... No, so, so the thing with LuLaRoe is that they don't actually care how many pairs of leggings their sellers sell, right? What they care is how many pairs of leggings those sellers buy from the company and how many other pairs of leggings, how many other people those sellers can bring in to then buy more leggings from the company and then turn around and throw those leggings away, sell those leggings. They don't care what happens to the leggings on the back end. Um, that's not how a normal clothing company would work, right? Normal clothing Leggings on the back end. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so from LuLaRoe's perspective, um, if they're turning over the kind of financial management of each individual seller's business, so and by business, I mean the sale of the individual leggings to a husband, um, for the company, they don't they don't care because they don't care how many pairs of leggings that customer or that that seller sells. Right. They do care, though, about keeping that seller in the LuLaRoe scheme so that she will continue every month to buy X number of leggings from LuLaRoe. And so that she will also then recruit more and more women below her to sell LuLaRoe as well. 
Um, and so where the kind of like retire your husband, bring your husband into the company thing comes in is I think it does a couple things. And, you know, one, it gets the whole family financially dependent on this company, right? Which is a, a little cult-like and, and certainly makes it harder to leave. Um, and two, it helps to reconcile, uh, I think, any kind of growing cultural discomfort um, or familial discomfort with a working wife and mother, um, which, you know, for the many women who are losing tremendous amounts of money in LuLaRoe is essentially a very expensive hobby. Um, perhaps that's, that is less salient, but for the few, and there were a few women who made a, a significant amount of money selling LuLaRoe and essentially recruiting other women to sell LuLaRoe. Um, when those women start, you know, perhaps out earning their husbands um, or dedicating more time to this, uh, job slash hobby than their husbands would like them to, you know, that threatens this kind of traditional conservative family dynamic that LuLaRoe as a company needs to exploit in order to find more sales, to find more sellers. Um, and so I think what the company was trying to do in the, in the encouraging of women to fold their husbands in and to give their husbands more control was to not go so far on that kind of like boss babe thing that it threatened this traditional family dynamic, um, which I think the company probably correctly knew uh, was going to be a stronger force even than you know an individual woman's uh, ambitions. When Square, um, oh, oh, go please. ahead, Genevieve. Just in terms of like cultural tensions with the commoditization of the different communities, essentially, because you are commercializing your communal ties to get to and to recruit more people was there a sense of once they became more financially dependent on the company overhead and the husbands got more involved that there was a an adverse financial effect on them being able to recruit yeah i mean for sure there part of the thing that the documentary uh, touches on is you have these these towns where it's like every single person was selling lularoe so who else is there to recruit? who's there's no one to sell to um, but there's also then nobody to kind of add into your, what they would call your downline, right? Which is the primary way of how people in a company like LuLaRoe make money. And this is, I mean, this is the thing with pyramid schemes, right? At some point, the bottom of the pyramid gets so big that it's encompassing almost every potential person in a community. And then that's when it all falls apart, right? Um, so yeah, I do think the company had to come up with a way uh, to keep people, you know, in, invested, um, to keep people tied to the company itself. Um, even as many of those people, I think we're seeing with their own eyes that this was not a particularly su sustainable business model. Yeah. Um, Paula has a great question. Um, hi, Paula. Nice to see you. Hi. Um, go ahead. Okay. So my question is, is what are your thoughts on how this like mix of faux feminism and MLM or pyramid schemes mixes with like the new, I don't know if you've kind of seen this emergence, like traditional wife movement um, on like social media, especially like on Instagram. Instagram is such a, like, I feel like Facebook maybe is the past of these things and Instagram fosters, at least in my opinion, it makes the traditional wife MLM lifestyle looks makes it look fun and like aesthetically pleasing or modern or it fits into the girl boss thing that you're talking about. 
Yeah, no, I think these things are very much <laughs> related. Um, that, you know, both of them, and I, I, I think they intersect, are obviously are distinct in some places, but I, both of those models, the kind of girl boss MLM dynamic and the like Instagram trad wife dynamic, um, you know, very much fall back on these uh, kind of sepia toned ideas of what female life was like, you know, pre-feminism, right? That it was very attractive and beautiful and easy and simple. And I don't know, we all farmed our own vegetables and had children and matching gingham dresses or whatever. Um, and so I do think in the- in Even the way guys, they look <laughs> so good in gingham. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, so I do think a lot of this is about these um, kind of very unrealistic, hyper-stylized aesthetic ideals um, that are told via social media, right? And I think you see that with the kind of trad wife Instagram thing. Um, and, you know, the, there's a writer named Anne Helen Peterson who's awesome, and she writes about this stuff a lot. Charlie's, Charlie's partner. Yeah, Charlie's been on the show a few times. Yeah. Okay, nice. Um, so she's brilliant on this stuff. And you know, she writes about the like mamas of Instagram and this kind of um, language of women's empowerment, female empowerment, uh, that is very much used to package and sell very old ideas, right? Whether that's like, I think the trad wives would kind of even reject that, right? But they would say this is a better way to live. This makes women happier. This is uh, better for a family. Um, I can have it all. Yeah, you, that one is. Yeah, you can have it all. So used. like women can just, you know, if what women actually want is is this life with you know a, a family and beautiful sun dappled children, um, and I think you in see gingham. in gingham, <laughs> similar vein, you know you see the kind of Lularoe MLM universe uh, selling this really similarly idealized vision of family, right? But all of it revolves around this idea that if you just do things right, you can be this perfect mother. Right. You can be a beautiful wife. You can be an excellent, involved parent. Um, you can live according to your community's values, whatever those might be. Um, and you can do it all while still kind of rejecting the angry, ugly feminists out there. Um, and so I do think that's a lot of the appeal. Angry, ugly feminists. Look at us. Don't, we're not ugly. We're a lot of shit, Jill. But we're good looking ladies. <laughs> don't, don't question about that. But why leggings? <laughs> I mean, like there are some there you could orient that worldview around so many things, right? Tupperware, kitchen stuff, right, would go well with it. There's something about loud leggings. And the the Lula I was struck by this in watching the show, that the LuLaRoe look is sort of at once very loud and also really boring. Um, it's just like, the guy with a dinosaur um, skull like, on his chest. <laughs> like, I, like, I'm sorry. You can say many things about a T-Rex shirt. It's not boring. <laughs> um, um, I, I'm curious why of all MLMs, like this is, you know, this isn't like save our kids, right? This like if you thought about like what the trad wife MLM 
product. And granted, the product isn't the product, but it's still what they're talking about. Why? I wouldn't have predicted loud leggings. What? Why? It's a good question. Yeah, I think the Tradwife product would probably be some sort of long paisley print maxi dress. I don't know. Um, you know, the so LuLaRoe obviously is not the only MLM, right? It's one of many. So there are MLMs for a whole series of things. Why LuLaRoe became such a popular one, um, I think, A, it hit right during the kind of athleisure uh, uptick. Um, you know, I'm a yoga teacher. I own like 26 pairs of leggings. None of them are LuLaRoe. Um, but LuLaRoe came to the market right at a time where, you know, wearing leggings as pants and athleisure kind of out running around uh, during the day outside of your house and outside of the gym was becoming not just a socially acceptable way to move through the world, but also to some degree a status symbol, right? Um, you know, so if you have like the LA mom in the aloe leggings or Lululemon, you know, behind the wheel of the Range Rover, um, then, you know, maybe the sort of suburban mom version of that is the, uh, the LuLaRoe leggings that also change patterns every, you know, few days, few weeks, whatever. The part of the company's model is that they would, they would often not repeat patterns. And so they created this false sense of scarcity, right? Of like, there's only, you know, however many hundreds or thousands of this particular pattern, even if it's the one that looks like it's like a penis on your leg. Um, you know, there's Wait, some really, there's one that, that one, it was like, not. <laughs> um, but so there, were, some of them are really, ugly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> profoundly, ugly. um, but there was this sense of like, these are almost collector's items, right? I mean, why do people buy like Beanie Babies or Precious Moments dolls? Um, you know, it creates this sense of there's, there's only so many of each of these. And so you want to, if you like one, you have to buy it now. If you want it, you have to get it. Um, and because the patterns I think were so loud, it was almost this statement of like, I'm wearing LuLaRoe. Uh, it was, I guess a brand recognition of a brand that for me and in, in my social universe is not at all resonant, but I think in many communities really was. Can I ask a dumb question? What's the price point of these leggings? That is a good question. And when I was preparing for this documentary, I knew what it was. They're not that expensive. They're not like hundred dollar Lululemon leggings. I think they're in the like $40 range. Like a bargain for something yeah. that falls apart in ten minutes after you yeah. wear it. Oh my god! <laughs> but if I hear the term "buttery soft" one more time, <laughs> I feel like myself, it was. Oh, I was. Well, that was what I was reading. Was like they were that they were like falling apart, and people were like, "Well, that's the process to make them so soft on your skin. We use these really well processed fabrics, uh, and that makes them not hold up that well." Um, and I was like. That's interesting. Like, like I don't know well, about that person. John Hawkinson has a buttery soft question. I know, I know. I'm going. I like. <laughs> go ahead, John. Sorry, I was all just right. trying to use oh. buttery soft out of context. I don't know very much about this world at all, but can we? Can you give us some clarity as to where the line is uh, on legality? When does this become a pyramid scheme? When is that a Ponzi scheme? And which of those things are legal? Yeah, so 
to be clear, I am not like a legal expert on MLMs, but the sort of simplest way that I can explain this is that pyramid schemes are defined in such a way that uh, they involve the uh, sort of moving upward of money, right? So pyramid schemes that only involve a cash investment, those are broadly illegal in the United States. Schemes that involve the exchange of goods for money, um, which are what MLMs are, are still broadly legal and, in my opinion, criminally underregulated. Um, so because LuLaRoe is technically selling leggings, even though for all intents and purposes, there's no kind of endpoint to where those leggings go, there was, they've now changed this, but for years there was no real kind of adequate return policy. Um, even though they're not really in the business of selling leggings, they are ostensibly and uh, sort of facially in the business <laughs> of selling leggings. And so that makes them not a pyramid scheme. Um, and they have faced, this is all in the documentary, a bunch of lawsuits. Um, and I, they were investigated, I believe, by Washington State. Um, they've managed to settle that case and changed a whole series of company policies. Um, but the MLM model, which is essentially you know, as, as a seller, most of your income from MLMs is coming from your downline. So you recruit people below you to join this company. Those people also buy products from this company that they're then reselling. And you get some cut, not of what those people sell to consumers, but of what they buy to the company, if that makes sense. Um, and that's what then creates this pyramid shape of, of MLMs, um, where the people that get in right at the top have many, many, many more downlines. And the people that get in at the bottom are essentially having some of what they're buying from the company kind of scooped off by all these people above them, and then are struggling to find kind of more people potentially that could be below them to help send more money up the chain. Um, as long as there's goods changing hands, uh, and again, that's like a very broad, very overly simplified way of, of putting this. Um, but if there are goods changing hands, then it's not considered technically a pyramid scheme, sort of the, the understanding that I have. So, so, so the trick is, is that they're selling the leggings to sellers. Um, it, it, so the sellers are, sellers are buying them, but not, not as consumers. Exactly. Right? So normally if you have, if I was to yeah. open a leggings store, right? Let's say what Brooklyn needs is one more store. <laughs> yeah, that's what Smith Street really <laughs> wants is like a freaking <laughs> leggings store. Uh, yeah. right? so, so I'm going to open this store and I'm going to buy leggings from, you know, from a wholesaler that I then sell at my storefront. That wholesaler is going to want to know how many of the leggings sell and for what amount. Right. And if they're selling to other sellers, they're also going to have some control over what I can sell those leggings for when we put those leggings on sale and things that don't sell get sent back to the company um, at the end once, I don't know, the season or whatever is over. Um, the way that LuLaRoe works, if I was to sell LuLaRoe leggings out of my Brooklyn legging storefront, is I would have to buy a minimum package of leggings from LuLaRoe. And I think the minimum package starts, it's a, at some point did start at around, around $10,000. So I would have to send $5,000 uh, to LuLaRoe. I would then get a package of leggings um, that I then have to turn around and sell. Um, 
But my agreement with LuLaRoe also means that I need to be buying more and more and more packages from them every month or every few weeks. And what the company is telling me is if you want to be a successful seller of LuLaRoe, you have to have more products, you have to have constant turnover. Um, and what I'm very, very quickly going to see is that the margins I'm making from actually selling those leggings is so small that that's not actually going to be really worth my time. What I'm going to see instead is that I make much more if I recruit Kate to also sell leggings. And so then Kate will buy the $5,000 worth of leggings from LuLaRoe and I will get some portion of that $5,000 that Kate just spent. These jeans feel bonus. like sandpaper. Get me something buttery soft, quick. Oh, so, so you're not, <laughs> but wait a second. You're not selling Kate the 5,000 that you just bought. You're selling, but the key is that the more people you recruit, she gets a bonus. You get a kickback yeah. of their entry package. Exactly. And so the, okay. the, actual, the actual funding mechanism is as they buy, as new people enter the system, they're putting money into the system for product that they have to then sell, and everybody above them gets a cut of that. So if you're high enough on the pyramid, you're actually getting what's effectively a kickback from every new entrant below you. Wow, well, it really does sound like Social Security, I just, just to say. No, no. So I'm, social security a is a better example of a, of a Ponzi scheme and a Ponzi scheme that works. And the reason the Ponzi scheme works is that the U.S. federal government is actually entitled to print money. Um, right, right, right. And, that, and that's why, you know, it has an infinite capacity for debt. Um, qu query whether it's really infinite, but that's the theory. So the difference between a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme. They, they, what, they both, what they have in common is that they rely on the exponential growth of new entrants to fund the top. Yes. So, but what a Ponzi scheme, what differentiates a Ponzi scheme is that, it's an, is, is that instead of a product, it purports to be an investment. So I am not selling you leggings. I'm saying to Genevieve and Scott and Kate and Jill, hey, I have this secret formula for investment. If you give me $10,000, I'll, you know, make, you know, in a year, you'll get blank. And all you have to do is recruit 40 new people into the scheme. And so, but effectively the money comes up and you can pay that first few levels at crazy rates of return as long as they're bringing new people into the system. The problem is that, you know, if you put a grain of rice on a chessboard and then the two grains of rice on the next square of the chessboard and th four on, you know, you run out of space in the universe for the 64th square. And exactly the same problem happens both in LuLaRoe and in the Ponzi scheme. The difference is the Ponzi scheme is less colorful because there aren't any leggings. Um, <laughs> Also, they don't tend to be marketed to stay-at-home moms. 
Is there any argument that could be made in terms of employment objections? I know that they're all independent, I, I'm assuming independent contractors, they own their own businesses, which limits the liability to the broader company. But is there anything that you think would be something that could be raised in terms of this is an illegal employment practice? That's a good question. I, I do not know the answer to that. I, you know, I'm not a legal expert on MLMs. Um, you, you would have a lot of TV. trouble with that argument. Yeah. The, it does, the, it's the, hall, the hallmark of legality or illegality in the MLM is the percentage of the revenue that comes from the actual sale of real product and the versus the, the, the percentage that is, uh, uh, accounted for by the recruitment of and fleecing of the people who were theoretically the sellers. The problem is most of these entities aren't publicly traded. And so, you know, you LuLaRoe can say we're selling X number of leggings in a year. And unless there's somebody like, say, the Washington State Attorney General who wants to sue them over it and make a set of allegations and get discovery, it's actually very hard to show that Herbalife isn't selling all of Paula's friends' dietary supplements, rather than that they're rather than that they're being forced to buy dietary supplements in order to theoretically sell them, which they won't. So, and and one more stupid question: Is there any distinguishment between this and a franchise franchisee situation? Oh, yeah. Yes. The distinction is that the so McDonald's, if you have a McDonald's franchise, you are actually selling hamburgers and the yeah. revenue from McDonald's comes from or if you have a, you know, a gas gas station, a shell oil gas station, the revenue comes from selling gas. Now, you are paying kind of tribute to the uh, franchising organization, but you actually own a business whose revenue doesn't come from the licensing the person across the street right. to get some shell oil from you. Yeah. So Go yeah, ahead. it's very different. One, one last, one last point. I know we have to wrap up Jill, but like one of the things that struck me about, about kind of this, that was super interesting is that you said that there was, there's a desire also around like the target demographic of this of women and being moms and everything else. And there's the cultural element, but there's also the very like, I think strong economic element of like wanting to be able to have flexible hours and work from home and not have this type of thing. Is there like, was, I mean, take the gig, gig economy for like what you will, or like, the Etsy economy or the craft-based economy or like things that aren't scams. Like, is there hope that like there will be more or like that those types of legitimate things that have actually come up because of kind of technology will start offering women via more viable, less like scurrilous alternatives to this? Like, I don't know. I do think it's a problem that we have. I mean, I, I'm not, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's a huge problem we have with like, ability to have like to raise children solo or otherwise and to like hold down a job um because of the child care situation or in our in our in our country so yeah i just i'm kind of curious your thoughts on that yeah i i'm cautiously optimistic that especially post pandemic right when all of us men and women alike that were in sort of the white collar labor force 
um, got kicked to working from home. That we will see, employers will see more opportunities for flexible workplace policies. Um, I think part of the reason we haven't seen huge shifts is because a lot of those flexible policies have been coded as feminine and things that women need and things that mothers need. And so immediately kind of half of people stop paying attention um, and policymakers tend to see that as uh, kind of maybe a special set of circumstances, right? Um, special lady stuff, not uh, necessary kind of worker protections or, or worker opportunities. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that because so much of that has changed in the past year and a half, that bosses and workplaces will be able to see that this is a viable option, right? Letting people be more flexible. Um, you know, at, at some point, this is also a policy problem. You can have all the flexible work that you want, but somebody still has to take care of children, right? It's very hard to take care of a child and work at the, at the exact same time. Um, and so I think workplaces do have a place here. I think LuLaRoe and these other MLMs have come in at and have identified a real vulnerability in the American workforce, which is that people, especially women, especially mothers, really do want uh, work that feels meaningful, that feels connected to their communities, that feel that is remunerated, um, that is also flexible and that they're able to do on their own terms. Um, I think it's unfortunate that scammers have kind of latched onto that um, before kind of many more reputable employers. Um, but yes, I am cautiously optimistic that that, that will change and that that will shift. Um, but again, I think it has to be kind of a two-pronged thing. I think we need employers to do the right thing, but I also think we need a policy landscape um, that doesn't put the work of managing having a job and having a family on individual families themselves and particularly on women. Hi, baby. I want to ask one related question to wrap up. Um, uh, it seems to me that LuLaRoe point, and the MLMs point out a vulnerability. They also point out a genuine, it seems to me, marketplace opportunity that a better functioning capitalist environment would actually deal with in a reputable, with a series of reputable businesses. And that is to say, you have a huge amount of untapped potential among women who want to stay home, have flexible jobs, and engage in direct sales. And direct sales has this uh, disreputable connotation because it's associated with the direct, the, with the multi-level marketing industry. But it seems to me that one thing that LuLaRoe represents is that there's a huge amount of energy out there. And my question is, why haven't uh, mainstream businesses noticed this and said, hey, some of this energy, uh, we have, you know, X product and Y product and Z product that we could get people excited about and actually behave like normal wholesalers and they could be retailers in their community and we can produce cool leggings too and actually sell leggings. And my, my question is, what, why is, why is the, why are legitimate industries not noticing the amount of energy that's going into MLMs and actually populating it with with more wholesome, serious 
that same energy using it for more wholesome and serious forms of, of sales? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, I do think that the women who make up the kind of MLM universe of sellers and, and, to, and to some extent buyers are a great untapped resource, um, both in both an economic resource and a political resource, maybe not for politics that I always agree with. Um, but, you know, these, these are women that are incredibly well connected, clearly ambitious, um, but have been essentially told that there's only a few acceptable places in which to funnel their ambitions. Um, and so I agree with you. It does seem like this is a really ripe space for non-exploitative, non-pyramid uh, schemes to come in. Um, you know, I think you've seen a little bit of that. Uh, I think, and I'm now kind of pulling this out of memory, and so forgive me if I get the factual details of this wrong, um, but I believe JetBlue for a while was using kind of a network of um, women who had been, you know, at home with their kids to do answer their customer service calls, um, you know, again, mostly in Utah. And I thought that was a pretty genius way of tapping into a really competent, really motivated set of workers who could then set their own hours, right? Because you need customer service around the clock if you're an airline. Um, and so I think that there are a few interesting models there. Um, but I agree. I, th I think that they are being really underutilized in part because, you know, the vast majority of companies are still run by men. Um, and I think in part because a lot of bosses want uh, significant control over their workers' daily lives. I think there's a lot of fear that if people are allowed to work on their own terms, on their own schedules, uh, that they'll exploit that, that workers will take advantage of those opportunities. Um, which is why even during the pandemic, you've seen this real pro proliferation of um, uh, software that allows you to monitor your workers at home, right? And I think this effort among bosses and managers to try to make sure that they still maintain control over how their employees are spending their time, um, which is creating a, a pretty significant amount of conflict, especially with younger employees. Um, so I think part of it is also changing a set of assumptions around what work means and how much control you do have over your employees. Can, can, can I suggest that, that maybe the reason you don't see legitimate businesses is that it's an incredibly inefficient way to sell leggings? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it's a little roundabout, right? <laughs> what, what, what it does show is that there's a whole pool of human beings out there that want to do something meaningful or want to do something productive. And, um, and that's what we should be. I mean, it doesn't have to take a form through selling a product. Um, they also want to get yeah. rich quick. Right. Yeah. Well, the tale is it, it, time. <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. Then, then, um, that, that I'm not sure the state can help them with, um, or, or legitimate business can help them with, but, we are going to leave it there. Jill Filipovich, you are a fabulous American. And, uh, uh, and I personally want to thank you for keeping an eye on this because uh, I learned a shitload from uh, this documentary about a subject that was apparently in every person's uh, Facebook feed below a certain age who doesn't have a Y chromosome. But being above that age and with a Y chromosome, I was completely unaware of it. And so uh, I thought it was fascinating. And uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
You're the best. We friend. will be back tomorrow. It'll be cheese night, which I. Uh, oh, it's uh, actually not cheese night. I booked a guest. But we'll oh, okay. it will not be cheese okay. night. We're discussing. Kate, tell us Chris, about your guest. It's Julian Sanchez and and Kristen Caps, oh. and they're coming on to discuss Dune. Um, I have not watched Dune. I have Jill not read is Dune, that but, face I, again. <laughs> but I love Julian Sanchez, uh, I, I, who I think is he, a great American. He has the best Twitter handle, normative, at normative. Yes. And yes, I just I feel like, that's the, the best. I can't believe somebody picked that. that. God bless him. And Julian is, uh, is a wonderful guy, and I'm excited to see him again. It's been a long time. That will be 22 hours and 57 minutes from now. And until then, Kate? Um, we don't have fun anymore, but I still do have these jeans that are uh, not leggings, but feel uh, like sandpaper. Terrible, terrible sandpaper. And I just dream of them becoming buttery soft someday. Buttery <laughs> soft. I can I just say, can I just say something? I had a, I had a, I had, I had, I had a line. Can I try my line? Yeah, your line wins. Go ahead. What's your line? Uh, so I think we can't then, find uh, any more, but we can get a cut of all the fun from the co-hosts we bring in. Oh, that's oh, true. Oh, good, yeah. good. Well done. Send a okay. bill to you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>